Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the June 1992 edition of the Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, USA. A Visit with Jimmy Doolittle, written by Thomas Wilson Reese, 32nd Degree. It had been 50 years, but when my wife and I recently visited Jimmy Doolittle at his home near Monterey, California, it was as though time had not intervened. Perhaps this was because General James A. Doolittle, 33rd Degree, the venerable hero of World War II and I corresponded through the years, regardless of geographic distance. My wife and I were returning from the 1991 reunion of the crews of the USS Mustin DD-413 and the USS Hornet CV-8. The latter was the aircraft carrier that had taken Jimmy Doolittle and his 79 Army Air Corps volunteers to within striking distance of Tokyo. Their mission was to launch the first air attack on Japan. The reason for two ships being involved in the reunion was that on October 26, 1942, when the Hornet was sunk, the Mustin rescued 337 men from the water off Santa Cruz Island in the Pacific. The reunion, with 179 attending, was in State Line, Nevada, near Lake Tahoe, during May 5th through 9th, 1991. Due to many Japanese advances early in 1942, America's morale was low and Jimmy Doolittle's successful foray in the face of overwhelming odds was a turning point on the road to eventual Allied victory. As I watched the Doolittle squadron of B-25s take off from the deck of the Hornet on April 18, 1942, I knew history was in the making. Thus, when I knew the Hornet-Mustin reunion would bring us close to the General's present residence, my wife and I wrote the great man's secretary and aide, just in case a visit was possible. Sure enough, it was. So on our way back home from the reunion, my wife and I drove down the Pacific coast, through gorgeous groves of giant pines and redwoods, to the General's home, arriving right on time. We were met by both the housemaid and the General's aide, who ushered us into the office of the elderly hero. Although he did not rise to greet us, we deferred to his 94 years, and my wife and I walked right over and gave him a hug. He looked up with that inimitable smile. Even though I could tell that his eyes saw less than in that time 50 years before, the twinkle was still there. He graciously posed for photos with my wife and me, though of course he did not recall me very distinctly as one of the Hornet's crew back in April 1942. He was glad to know I had a part, however small, in the success of his mission. Then his aide brought in cranberry juice and we toasted our good fortune and luck at seeing each other again. Although the natural beauty of the area around the General's home provided unbelievable views via the wide windows of his office, my eyes and those of my wife Lee were riveted on the General whose dangerous flight to Japan proved without a doubt that the Emperor of Japan was vulnerable. We spoke briefly about our lives since the 1940s, but in no way did we tax the General's memory with questions, and when he realized he might be tiring, we made our exit. 
To this day, I can see that gallant hero who helped to turn the war around that presaged the utter defeat of Japan three and a half years later. As a Scottish Rite Mason, I am particularly proud that General Doolittle has been honored with the 33rd degree and our order's highest recognition, the Grand Cross. In addition, the Brethren of California have seen fit to enter General Doolittle in the House of the Temple's new Grand Temple Architects Hall of Honor. His original oil portrait by Jean Pilk is now placed next to the portraits of other great Scottish Rite Masons, such as President Harry S. Truman, 33rd degree, Jean Autry, 33rd degree, and Dr. Norman Vincent Peel, 33rd degree. General Doolittle's portrait, placed among those of his distinguished peers, Scottish Rite Masons who truly have given distinguished service to our fraternity and our country, is a permanent tribute in the House of the Temple to this great military leader, Mason, and American. Despite his years, General Doolittle is still active in a number of patriotic causes. He is, for instance, the titular head of the British Imperial War Museum to be established in the Duxford Airfield Complex where an American Air Museum will honor the airmen of World War II. General and Brother Doolittle, Scottish Rite Masons everywhere, salute and thank you. You are an American hero of World War II. Yes, but also a hero for our time and all time. The following article is also from the June 1992 edition of the Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, USA. This article is written by Ralph D. Seligman, 33rd degree, Consulate General of the Supreme Council, 33rd degree of Israel. The article is titled, Frederick the Great and Freemasonry in the Bahamas. One of the bedrocks of Scottish Rite Freemasonry is the Constitutions of 1786. Purportedly, these documents were executed and approved by Frederick II, the Great, King of Prussia, in Berlin on May 1, 1786, shortly before his death on August 17, 1786. The authenticity of the Constitutions has been challenged by a number of Masonic historians, including R.F. Gould and J.G. Findell, yet they are strongly defended by Albert Pike, 33rd degree, and Henry C. Clausen, 33rd degree past Sovereign Grand Commanders of the Supreme Council, 33rd Degree, Southern Jurisdiction. The position of Pike and Clausen is also strongly supported by C.A. Thory, a French Masonic historian. Thory, responding to questions regarding an anti-Masonic edict issued by the Emperor Joseph II in 1785, stated that it was about this time that Frederick the Great revised the higher degrees, adding eight degrees to the existing 25 of the right of perfection, thereby forming the ancient and accepted right of 33rd degrees and founding the Supreme Council 33rd degree. Thory's claim is emphatically refuted by a number of Masonic historians. Some of Frederick the Great's critics have even suggested that his connection with Freemasonry was minimal. In June 1983, however, Brother Christopher Hafner presented a paper to lodge Ars Quatur Coronatorum, bringing to light facts showing Frederick's deep involvement within the craft. In 1738, while he was still crown prince, Frederick was initiated in the Lodge de Hamburg, the first lodge in Germany. Lodge de Hamburg had been meeting since December 1737, but did not receive a warrant from England until October 23, 1740. 
It should be borne in mind that the connection between England and Germany was through Frederick, who is related to the English royal family and very popular with British subjects. R.W. Hafner, who is now District Grand Master of Hong Kong and the Far East and distinguished Masonic scholar, states that the master who initiated Frederick, brother Grand Lodge von Oberg, was commanded by Frederick to create a court lodge at Rheinsburg and that Frederick took the master's chair in November 1739. Hafner then goes on to give details of other German lodges consecrated after Frederick's ascension to the throne on May 31, 1740, including the following. A castle lodge was opened in Bayreuth on January 26, 1741 by four brethren, including Count Frederick, who had been initiated by Frederick the Great in an occasional lodge held in the latter's bedroom as he lay sick with fever. Two lodges are believed to have started in Berlin in 1754 and 1755 for French-speaking artists and officials brought to Berlin by Frederick the Great. Most or all of these lodges had intimate connections with English Freemasonry. Mackey states that in July 1774, Frederick granted his protection to the National Grand Lodge of Germany and officially approved of the treaty with the Grand Lodge of England by which the National Grand Lodge was established. On Frederick's birthday in 1777, celebrated at a festival by the Mother Lodge Royal York of Friendship at Berlin, the King wrote a letter extolling Freemasonry and assuring his protection of the order. It is against this background that while researching another Masonic matter in the Bahamas Gazette, my attention was caught by this report. Nassau, January 28, 1786. Tuesday last, the 24th, being the birthday of the illustrious Frederick, King of Prussia, the Society of Freemasons, in honor of their royal brother and distinguished patron of the ancient craft, gave a ball and supper at Smith's Tavern to a numerous and brilliant assembly of ladies and gentlemen between 7 and 8 o'clock in the evening. The company assembled, soon after which dancing commenced. At half past 11, they retired to the supper room. A very plentiful cold collation was set out in the style of elegance that did credit to the house. After supper, dancing was resumed and continued till past three o'clock when the company broke up. Highly satisfied with the occasion that had drawn so many happy persons together and pleased with the polite attentions of the gentlemen who had acted as managers of the entertainment. This eloquent tribute to Frederick as the distinguished patron of the ancient craft occurred in 1785 only months after a warrant was issued by the ancients for the first English lodge in Nassau, number 238, and months before the constitutions of May 1, 1786, and Frederick's death in August 1786. The members of a Scottish lodge functioning in Nassau prior to 1785 undoubtedly attended the ball. The Gazette's report suggests that high esteem in which Frederick was held by the English and Scottish brethren in a distant British colony must have reflected his reputation as a Freemason in the mother country. However, even though the Bahamas Gazette report is circumstantial evidence, the following words of Mackey should clinch the controversy. We must not forget that the adoption of the constitutions makes them legally binding upon the Freemasons who subscribe to this document, no matter whether it was or was not the creation of Frederick. Thank you for listening. 
If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.